It's the afternoon of Wednesday, June 14th. Fed Chair Jay Powell just got off the Powell presser. Uh, there's no interest rate hikes for the first time in well over a year. The interest rates are at 5.25% unchanged. And yet the Powell is pledging uh, implicitly that they will continue to hike. So it's not a stoppage of rate hikes. It is only a pause or a skip, although Powell didn't want to use that word exactly. And I'm so glad I'm joined by uh, BlockWorks co-founder Mike Ippolito and, of course, the Fed guy himself, Joseph Wang of FedGuy.com. Gentlemen, uh, great to have you here. Thanks, Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to see you again, Mike. Yeah, you as well, my friend. So, uh, Joseph, start off, what, what are your broad thoughts on the meeting? Was it, it was anticipated that this would be a hawkish pause. How hawkish was this for you? So this was as hawkish as, as, uh, as it could be for, for pause. And I'll tell you in a moment why I think that. But I think it's helpful to level set to how we got to where we are. So as you know, the Fed hiked last meeting, and there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not that was the end of the cycle or they would continue hiking. So we, over the intermediate period, we had Governor Waller basically come out and say that, you know, we're not done yet. And so the market wasn't sure whether or not we would have a rate hike today in June. Um, heading into the meeting, we had future Vice Chair Jefferson give a speech and saying that he's all for the skip. So once he said that, the market was basically, yeah, this is, this, is, uh, this is going to be a meeting where there's not going to be a lot happening and maybe we'll hike in July. So that was the expectation heading into this meeting, especially since um, CPI seems to be according to expectations. So we all knew that Chair Powell would skip this meeting. And th there was some good reason to think that there would be a hawker skip. And by hawker skip, I mean that the Fed has an opportunity on these meetings. So once a quarter, June, uh, June, March, and September, December, to also communicate additional information about the potential path of policy. They do this by releasing what's called the dot plot. And at the dot plot, each FOMC member notes down where they think Fed funds, growth, inflation, and so forth will be at the end of this year, next year, and the year after. So a way to communicate a hawkish pause would be to just pause, but raise the uh, the projections in the dot plot. And that's exactly what the FOMC did today. Why I think this is as hawkish as could be is for two reasons. One, they raised their expectation for um, for the path for the Fed funds rate at the end of December, 50 basis points compared to March. So March, they were thinking at the end of December, we'd be at 5.1%. Uh, today, they communicated that you know the median expectation is 5.6%. So two hikes, so two more hikes. Now, I thought that was pretty hawkish. You know, 50 basis points is a pretty big jump since March. But what made it extra hawkish, in my view, was that when you go to the dot plots, the, each, each participant's individual forecast is plotted down. You don't know who the dot belongs to, but it's plotted down. And you can see there's widespread um, wide, widespread agreement on the community that we'd have about two more, two more hikes. And so uh, that tells me that even though heading into this meeting, we had doves, we had hawks, there was some disagreement that most people are on board to, to what the dot plots are projecting. And this makes perfect sense to me. If you look at their projections earlier um, in, in, the, uh, in, in March, things have not gotten according to expectations. The Fed was thinking that um, based on their March expectations, they'd hike into a five to 5% and that growth would slow down, unemployment would go up, inflation would go down. 
And actually, none of that is really happening. So, so the Fed, you know, forecasts were, were not right. So they adjusted their policy rate upwards to, to try to account for that. And who knows, maybe they'll have to adjust it upwards again uh, in terms of their expected rate hikes. Yeah, Joseph, I want to get into some of the some of the components that you just mentioned, especially unemployment. Chair Powell spent a good amount of time unpacking his thoughts on that. But I'd love to actually ask you why. Why do you think that there was a a pause? I think Nick Timmerhouse actually asked this question, uh, you know, in the follow up, which was why would you pause now if we're just going to do two more rate hikes again towards the end of the year? Chair Powell really uh, highlighted sort of this idea between the speed and the, the level of rates. So I'd love it if you could sort of unpack why you think they chose this particular course of action. Mike, great question. But sorry, I, I got to say, you got to get the, the best part of Nick's question in there, which is, <laughs> hey, Powell, and I don't mean to be flippant, you know, Powell, but it's like by buying a gym membership, you're not losing weight. You only lose weight if you go to the gym. And Powell's response, as you said, was it's about the speed, uh, not versus the level and how we get there. But I guess you have to take Tim Rose's uh, analogy seriously. That's like saying if, if for the you bought a gym membership in January, as many people do, and for the first three months, you don't go to the gym at all. And someone says, hey, what's going on? Why are you not going to the gym? You say, I'm still going to lose 20 pounds by December, but I'm just, you know, it's like, at what point do you say, go to the gym? No, that's a really good point. Uh, why don't you just hike today, right? Well, mm. I mean, look at look, look at your target. Look at where core PCE is. You're kind of not not uh, not where you want to be. So, uh, so Mike noted that Dr. Powell is breaking down his framework. He he's like, you know, when I think about rate hikes, I look at three things. One is the pace of the hike. Mm. Two is the level of where rates will be. And three is how long I hold rates there. And that's Chair Powell's framework. So he's saying that, well, you know, when we began hiking, we hiked very aggressively, super fast paced because we knew we were far from where we want to be. Okay. Now we're, we're a lot closer to where we want to be. We've hiked rates, 500 basis points. We're not sure how much farther we need to go. Maybe 50, maybe 75. I don't know. But because we're so much closer to the destination, we're just going to slow down, you know, see how things go. Because, you know, we think that we're really close to where we want to be. I just don't know exactly. So, you know, just take my time. After all, you know, I, I'm almost there. And the last, of course, is how long to hold it, uh, higher for longer and so forth. So, you know, I, I think Nick's question does make sense. Why don't you just hike? But I think in Chair Powell's defense, you can also think of it this way. So by telling the markets through their dot plots and through their communication that, you know, we might be hiking 50 basis points more this year, that gets priced into the market a bit. So even just by saying that, you know, you're kind of influencing interest rates a little bit. And if you look at the two-year yield, uh, yields are, are up a little bit uh, today, and that reflects the expectation that there'd be more tightening. So um, even though they're not hiking today, they did on the margins um, hike a little bit based on expectations. Right. So they didn't pl pl uh, raise the spot rate, the overnight rate, a series yes. of overnight rates, but they did. It's all about language and vibe. And the vibe was hawkish. So the uh, June Fed funds futures, the July, you know, the, the uh, treasuries, all sorts of interest rate things went up a little bit. And that is where most people actually borrow. Uh, yes, exactly right, Jack. Right. Do you think, uh, Joseph, this is, you know, we're wading into the realms of speculation here a little bit, but Chair Powell also did call call attention uh, very explicitly to the fact that they know that they uh, the full effect, right, of their 
their rate hikes haven't necessarily been felt yet. So do you think that there's some amount of sort of hedging their own risk here where a pause gives them a little bit of time to see if those uh, you know, effects ultimately play out as opposed to sort of hiking blindly and then the effects could be much worse than they had initially thought? That's definitely part of it, I think. So when, when you're talking about just how long it takes for monetary policy to work through the, the, to the real economy, you're going to have varying views on this. So traditionally, mm. you'd be like, you know, monetary, monetary policy works through long and variable lags and so forth. Now, some people would say, you know, maybe it takes 18 months. Uh, I think Chair Powell himself, my sense just by listening to him over the past few years, is that he thinks it acts a lot faster. The reason being, and I think he noted this today, is that uh, let's say back in the days of uh, Greenspan, you know, they would hike and no one would know they, they'd hike. You'd have to go and, and look into what actually happens. But today, the Fed is very public. And so uh, when they're about to hike, the market is pricing it in months in advance. So even though even though um, the Fed has not yet hiked, the market has been anticipating this. And so in a sense, uh, it's getting a lead time into it. So even though the, the Fed started hiking, let's say last year, the, the U.S. Treasury uh, market had already been pricing it in a lot earlier. So. Uh, maybe because of that, the distance between when the Fed actually hikes and when it's felt in the economy is shorter than before. And I'd also note something super interesting is that, you know, the way that monetary policy works is primarily, well, first and foremost, there's a lot of different ways it works, is through industries that are really interest sensitive. Chief among those, of course, is housing. I, I thought it was funny that it seemed like Chair Powell was calling the bottom on the housing market. So... <laughs> So, so, and you know what? He actually, it's, it's a good call. If you look at the housing market, broadly speaking, um, mortgage rates went up a lot, and yet we did not have the apocalypse as many were expecting. In fact, it looks like uh, just looking at the Case-Shiller index, uh, prices seem to be bottoming, bottoming earlier in the year and have gradually risen, um, especially in certain jurisdictions, in certain regions in the U.S., and if you look at the home builder stocks, oh my, well, they're, they're like racing towards all-time highs. So um, uh, when you're looking at interest rate sensitive sectors of the markets, you you want to you think that it takes a long time to work through, but actually it looks like it's already worked through, and now it's done with done with it. Like the market has uh, accustomed itself to higher interest rates and and uh, continue to chug along. So Joseph, the Fed indicated that. The median expectation is that they will uh, raise interest rates two more times, two more hikes. So uh, currently it's in the range of 5% to 525, the upper range of 5.25%. They're saying we'll probably we'll have to get to 5.745% on the upper range or 5.6% in the middle right there. What do you, I, I feel like I have a good sense, Joseph, of what you think the Fed should do. But what do you think the Fed actually will do? Because right now I'm looking at the, the, the futures markets on um, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and it's saying the odds of a hike in July uh, are about 60%. So 60% chance, another 25 basis point to 5.5% on the upper range, but a 40% chance that they stay where they are. And I imagine if they stay in July, they might stay in September too. I mean, you know, if, if the Fed doesn't hike and meeting after meeting, they continue to hike, uh, you know, at some point they're pledged to... Uh, raise interest rates, they're going to have to kind of deliver on their promise, right? No, my expectation is that they actually do deliver on their promise. So I think an extra 50 basis points this year is totally reasonable and would be my base case. Now, as you mentioned, Jack, the market is not super sure, but to be also clear, 
the market has not been sure for the past two years, and that's been totally wrong for the totally past wrong. Two years. And and you've been right, Joseph. You've been fading the market and the you know Joseph ten market zero. So <laughs> let's be clear about that. So I would add some more context as to why I think this way. Now, if we take a step back and look at the let's say uh, look at countries across the world, it's not just the U.S. that has an inflation problem. You also have uh, countries that are not exactly like the U.S. but similar in key respects. So the Western world, so the EU, Canada, Australia, the U.K. They all have tremendous inflation problems. Now, looking at Canada and the Australia, for example, you know they hiked aggressively, just like the Fed, and just like the Fed, they paused. The Bank of Canada, in particular, paused actually way back in January.、Uh, they thought that it was mission accomplished, but just last week they began to hike again and hinted that they may continue to hike as well. So, if you look across the world, what you see is that we have a deep inflation problem in the Western world, and that that's not going away easily.、Uh, and it just seems like things aren't working the way that central banks thought they would. And so, I, I would I would not be surprised if the same dynamic played out here. Uh, in the U.S., and it actually already has. Like, if you look at the Fed's own projections, they were thinking that they would hike to 500 basis points, and we would see、uh, inflation come down, unemployment go up, and so forth. It hasn't happened. So, I think what's happening is that central banks, and not just the central banks, that the、uh, the financial market community in general is still grappling with、um, how this new world works, and it just doesn't work the same way as the old world. And so, just as other banks. Had to restart their hike cycle and go farther than the market expected. So I think the Fed will also end up in the same situation. Yeah, I I was、um, I I would be curious just maybe we could start to talk a little bit about unemployment. Chair Powell spent a good amount of time chatting about this. You know, specifically he talked about the demand、uh, the balance in between supply and demand in the labor market. He did call attention to wages finally moving in from his perspective the right direction, which is to say some of the nominal wage growth is finally starting to come off. I'd be curious what what did you think about his comments on unemployment because that's been something that、uh, him and the Fed have paid、uh, a lot of attention to. Yeah, I think that he he's moving towards the direction that higher wages is is part of part of the reason that's contributing to inflation staying higher. So he seemed to think that the wages were not were not necessarily driving inflation. Inflation started because there was tremendous demand earlier in the pandemic, and so prices went up, you know, corporate profits went up, and so forth. Uh, but now that wages have gone up, that that gives people more spending power, so you, they can continue continue to afford higher prices, and so that kind of keeps the、uh, keeps inflation high. So I'd also make an extra note to this as well. So in the U.S., wages have have been growing at let's say about six percent year over year, and that's been pretty consistent over the past、uh, you know over the over the past year or so. But another alarming development is that, in addition to wages growing a lot, we also have labor productivity actually declining. And you know, maybe it has something to do with、um, working from home or something. I don't know. So what that means is that for a given hour, a worker is producing less than they did beforehand. So if they were working in a factory and producing, let's say, a hundred widgets an hour, now maybe they're only producing ninety-eight or something like that. So their productivity is declining. Now this is alarming because while their wages are going higher, and their productivity is also declining, so in a sense,、uh, labor is becoming more expensive, or basically you're actually paying for them more because you're, you're paying more for wages and like you're paying more for this worker, but you're getting less out because they're producing less, and so that's also 
driving inflation upwards. So Chair Powell doesn't want to cause wages to go to decline. What he wants is something around, let's say, 3 4% growth in, in wages, depending on how productivity evolves. And he's not getting that so far, actually. He thinks, he's, he says, that, yeah, this is slow, getting there slowly. But I think if you look at the Atlanta wage tracker, it's, it's like going down from, let's say, uh, seven, six and a half to six. So it's definitely trending towards that direction, but it's also trending very slowly. Hmm. And and what do you think, you know, Joseph, I, you know, you were talking about some of the other central banks outside of just the Fed necessarily, and, you know, exhibiting a very similar pattern, right? Very steep set of hikes, then there was a pause, and then they continued to hike, you know, which implies that the job isn't necessarily done. Um, Jack, I'm not sure if I think we've gotten our chart deck here, actually, what the last uh, CPI report actually looked like. But certainly, you know, inflation does look like it's trending in the right direction. He did call uh, pay attention to uh, OER, owner's equivalent rent, right? Shelter, which is there's a, a known lag there. And if that came off, I think you'd, you'd certainly be trending in the right direction. And I guess I'm curious about what they would need to see in order to feel confident. I actually am remembering this interview that Stanley Druckenmiller did. I think it was last year at the Sone conference where he noted that there had never been a situation after CPI headline had gotten over 5% that inflation hadn't been solved by bringing Fed funds above CPI. And it was sort of noted a little bit, but uh, we actually did get um, uh, a headline inflation below uh, Fed funds. So I guess I'd be curious, like, is it something in the numbers or what do you think we would need to see in order for, you know, the central banks, the Fed and, and just more globally in order to feel more confident? And just sorry, real quick, the chart that we're showing on right now, the thick white line is headline CPI. So the, all uh, inflation dotted line is core, so not including energy. Uh, blue is services, not including food and energy. Uh, dark orange is goods. Food is in light orange and green is in, excuse me, energy is green. So you're saying we're getting energy disinflation now, price of gas going down, price of oil going down. And that is why core inflation, excuse me, headline inflation is actually low. Or we're having more, you know, is, is coming down more. Uh, so I think it was 4.1% for the month of May yearly. Uh, whereas for core, it was stickier. So, to Joseph. So I think you, I think this chart actually is is really helpful because it tells mm. you that you know headline inflation is going lower. So it, it looks like on the surface that the Fed is making progress, uh, but you have to keep in mind that the Fed actually doesn't look at headline inflation. They look at core. Their favorite measure is called is something called core PCE. Now headline inflation, I think it's helpful for them. Uh, because headline is what everyone looks at in their day-to-day -day life. And from their perspective, he lower headline inflation helps anchor inflation expectations. So if headline inflation continued to rise, they would be worried that inflation expectations would get out of control and then they'd really panic. So a decreasing headline inflation gives them a more comfort and buys them more time. But what they're really concerned about, though, is core inflation, which, as you can see in the chart, is also trending in the right direction, but at a much, much slower rate than, than, uh, than headline. And this is CPI, but you know, PC and CPI are very similar. I, I, think you, I think it's great that you brought up owner's equivalent rent. So one of the things that many commentators have been pointing at is that uh, in the future, they expect that CPI to gradually decline, to be clear, core CPI to gradually can decline uh, because owner's equivalent rent is going to decline. So what that is, it's, it's a measure with basically how much uh, how much rent costs. Now, there's always a lag between when rent uh, feeds into the CPI 
uh, because not everyone renews their lease at the same time. Uh, let's mm -hmm. say, for example, today uh, I sign a new lease. It, my lease is up 10%. Okay, that's great. Uh, but I might, and uh, that so that, that feeds in. But let's say um, next year, though, between now and, and next year, you know, my rent stays the same and I, my, I'm not going to get higher rent until I renew my lease next year. So there's a, there's a lag between um, when new leases get signed and when existing leases renewed. And so that was always the expectation that, that eventually, you know, owner's equivalent rent will come down and everything will be okay. And Chair Powell was kind of dismissive of that view. And the reason being is that he's like, well, we have all these guys giving all these forecasts, including the Fed, who have been totally, totally wrong. I can't, I can't be, I can't be making projections off those wrong forecasts again, right? I mean, uh, fool me once, shame on me. I'm shame on you. Fool me twice. You know, it's kind of uh, shame on me. So, so I think they're going to have to be a bit more pragmatic. And I think because of what happened with their forecast errors, errors earlier, they're not going to be comfortable until they see core PCE trend lower, uh, definitely below four percent uh, before they they they, uh, they feel comfortable. Hey everyone, we'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the ones that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, Rollups, Count Abstraction, MEV, App Change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. Yeah, and I think there was reference in that question and answer to a paper by uh, Blanchard and I think Bernanke said saying that inflation at first was supply side driven, but now it is demand side driven. And I think Bernanke's been a you know inflation is supply driven type of guy. So I think you know even the people who were saying that inflation is supply side driven, even they're they're coming over to the demand side uh, narrative and. You know, Joseph, you're like, come over. There's room, you know. Um, so, anyway, Jack, I'll, I'll make one more note about that. So, um, so one of the reporters cited this piece from the San Francisco Fed saying, "Hey, hey, hey, you know, inflation is not driven by wages. It's probably greedflation or something like that." So, you know, you don't really need to hike rates anymore. And Chip uh, was like, "Yeah, that's really nice. I don't really endorse any particular pieces. By the way, this piece by Bernanke, it's really good, and it says oh, that we yeah, should yeah. continue the hike rates." <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nice. I missed that. Yeah. I mean, the whole, you know, greedflation, it's like, yeah, corporations are greedy, but they were greedy in 2018, you know, and the CPI then was two. So that's my, that's my, that's my pushback. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just broad commentary. So uh, the Fed is really influential and they impact a lot of industries and a lot of people. And so everyone will, will try to influence the Fed in, in certain ways. And one of the ways that they do this is by having these think pieces and so forth saying, advising the Fed what to do. So you always have to be mindful, you know, uh, is this trying to push a particular agenda or is it just really honest research? Got it. Okay, so I think we covered rates pretty well. Now let's move on to the, the balance sheet. Uh, Victoria Guida from Politico asked about, she has fantastic questions. Number one, let's just say I'm Victoria Guida and Joseph, you're Fed, you're 
Number one, are we approaching reserve scarcity? Number two, how will treasury issuance impact that? And number three, might the Fed consider lowering the reverse repo rate, RRP rate, to help banks who are struggling with deposits leaving because of deposit costs? Yeah, those, those, I know Chair Powell answered those questions really well. So he was like, yeah, we don't think that there will be reserve scarcity and so forth. And I think that because, um, and part of it is because during the upcoming TGA refill, he's thinking that, you know, part of the, part of the, part of the financing for that will come out of the reverse repo facility and not just a lot of banks. And I think that's, that's right. And in particular, because it seems like the treasury has adjusted itself to be, uh, to be more accommodative to, um, to money market fund community. So recently the treasury has guided towards that. There's going to, they're going to issue more short dated bills, uh, for example, they're going to launch a new CMB issuance, which is, has a six-week maturity. And so what, what's happening there is that they, they're trying to issue more short-dated bills that would be uh, that the money market funds would consider attractive. So the money market funds, part of the reason why they have been big buyers of bills over the past year is because there's a lot of uncertainty in the path of Fed policy. They don't want to buy a treasury bill and then have the Fed announce a, a hike or something like that being priced in, and then, you know, they, they would lose a little bit of money on that. One way to get around that would be to issue shorter dated bills. So uh, because this treasury treasury is, uh, you know, being accommodative of that, it seems like there's going to be more uptake from money market funds. So more purchases by money market funds than expected uh, b- before, before this recent announcement. So uh, if that continues, we could expect that, you know, when the TGA rebuilds, Part of it will come out of the reverse repo facility, part of it coming out of the banking sector. Uh, so that, that's going to help banks keep reserve levels higher than, than otherwise expected. Um, so Chair Powell was totally right that he, they would not toggle the reverse repo facility rate to try to, um, I guess, encourage m- money out of the reverse repo facility. That, that doesn't really work that well because if you toggle the reverse repo facility rate, you know, I, I would expect that other short-term money market rates to adjust as well. Uh, so for example, let's say that you lowered the reverse repo facility rate by five basis points, you know, maybe bill yields would also trade five basis points lower. So you don't actually make the reverse repo facility less attractive compared to other assets. But you do make it uh, attractive compared to, to bank deposits. And I think that was the, the question of, so money market funds invest in treasuries and reverse repo facility if you lower the reverse repo uh, by five basis points, that's a little bit less competition that banks who, you know, regional banks who are, you know, made loans at, made a lot of 3% mortgages and are, you know, now have to pay 3% on deposits. That takes a little bit of pressure off of them. Although, Joseph, in our, in our earlier conversation with Lou Crandall um, on Forward Guidance, which was was great, uh, Lou, Lou kind of debunked that. Well, yeah, I, you know, first of all, so there's a limit to how much the RRP could be lowered. It cannot be lowered more than five basis points because you know the Fed the Fed has a target band where it wants to keep interest rates. Right now, uh, the target the RRP offering rate is five basis points above the the Fed lower bound of the Fed target. I'm not sure lowering five basis points is, is really going to have that much of a difference. Is there someone out there who would say, you know, I could get five basis points more in a money market fund, so I'm going to take money out of a bank and put it there? There might be, but uh, I don't know if that's going to make too big of a difference. Yeah. So the lower Fed funds rate is 5.00% now. Upper bound is 5.25%. And that's where all the sort of action is in that range. And reverse repo is now at 5.05. So you're saying they could only lower it to 
five percent to be within that ceiling. Just as a crazy deal, what if they what if they take it you know down to four percent? So it's way below the band, and so they make it a super unattractive vehicle for investors, or even zero. I mean, that's basically just like let's uh, well, burn no, all that. The, the whole point the whole point of having a reverse repo facility is to be able to control interest rates. So mm. so let's say that the Fed is hiking rates. What does that even mean? Well, that means that you know, someone somewhere who wants to invest on an overnight basis uh, should be able to be should be able to invest at the Fed's uh, the policy rate, the rate the Fed sets. So let's say, for example, following your hypothetical, that they lower the reverse repo facility to 4%. Well, that means that um, a lot of people who want to invest at the 5% interest rates that the Fed is targeting for the markets are not don't have that option. You know, the, their best option is to invest at 4% uh, with the Fed. Uh, it could be that someone in the private market is willing to offer them 5%, but Obviously, there's not enough people there. That's why there's only all this money in the reverse repo facility. So you really cannot drop that below uh, the lower range of the Fed's target. The whole point of that facility is to provide uh, a floor for interest rates such that when the Fed raises that floor, they can raise interest rates. And when the Fed wants to lower interest rates, they can lower that floor. That is used to implement policy, and it, it can't it can't be to change below below the Fed's target. All right, so when the Federal Reserve says we're raising interest rates, the, the headline rate, they're changing a series of rates. The headline rate is the federal funds rate. No, technically nothing to do with the, the Fed. It's not The Fed is not a counterparty there. It's the unsecured lending rate between banks. Uh, so if they were to raise basis points to 5.25%, to but they were to lower the reverse repo rate to, to 4%, what would that mean? Where... Uh, Basically, in this somewhat small market, the affected funds market, where you know it doesn't matter that much, interest rates. It's like, oh my god, the Fed is so hawkish. But actually, the the real rate is at four percent. I was kind of be like a a shadow uh, easing. So you're exactly right that the Fed's target rate is the federal funds rate. But as the Fed knows, and, and anyone in this market knows, the federal funds rate has become irrelevant for over ten years. Uh, the real rate I think that the Fed is, is targeting is the repo rate. And the repo rate is following the reverse repo facility rate. So, you know, you're right. I, so I, I suspect that if they drop the reverse repo facility rate um, uh, really low outside of the target, you could still have Fed funds within target. But, you know, that that kind of would be nonsense, though, because economic activity through the financial markets, interest rate control it is really done through. Uh, is really done through the reverse repo facility rate. So you wouldn't be having, you, you actually wouldn't be uh, shifting interest rates to where you want it to be. What about outside of just the banking sector, Joseph? I'd be curious to get your take. So there, I've, I've heard you talk about in previous interviews that it's sort of been orthodoxy in the Federal Reserve that you know the price of money and the quantity of money should be moving in the same way. That is to say, if you were to say, be cutting interest rates at the same time that you're um, you know, rolling off the balance sheet of the, the the Federal Reserve, that would be kind of like putting the gas and the brakes on at the same time. Um, this is a little bit of a, an in-between here, right? Because there's sort of a hawkish signal that we're going to keep raising rates, but for the time being, we're going to pause rates. And at the same time, we're going to keep letting Treasury securities roll off the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Curious, you know, if you could just reiterate for listeners what the the sort of relative impacts of both those actions are, and what do you just think about the Fed's ability to keep rolling those Treasury securities off their balance sheet? 
So the Fed has two policy tools. One is what they like, which is the overnight rate. And they've noted many times that they would like the overnight rate. So the Fed funds rate or just in the reverse repo facility rate mm. to be the primary tool through which they conduct monetary policy. They prefer this because they feel like they understand it better. Now, the alternative tool is the balance sheet. And back when rates were zero, they went and bought a whole lot of treasury securities to try to push down longer dated treasury yields as a way to as a way to uh, put uh, to put offer additional accommodation into the market. So now that we are hiking rates, Fed is trying to shrink its balance sheet. So I, I my sense is that going forward, they're going to continue to you know let the balance sheet shrink in the background while while toggling the overnight rates uh, up or down. So my sense is because they want the federal funds rate to be the primary tool, they're keen to shrink the balance sheet. So in the future, even if we cut rates, I, I'm pretty sure that they'll continue to let the balance sheet roll off. And I think they can continue to do that for quite some time. So the concern here, of course, is that, you know, you let the balance sheet shrink. Uh, that's a lot of treasuries the private market has to absorb it, and maybe it'll have trouble absorbing it. You could have spikes in interest rates or higher interest rate volatility. We saw some of that last year, but I think that right now there's good demand for treasury securities from the investor community because there's a lot of investors out there who are really gung-ho about a recession. So they're they're all in on the recession trade. And so from their playbook, if there's a recession, you got to buy treasuries. And, and so they're, uh, they're, they're kind of, uh, you know, buying a lot of them right now. So that, that's been giving, I think, a, a steady demand in the treasury market so far. Yeah, I had a buddy of mine text me. Is it? Is it? Is it? It's time to buy thirty-year Treasury bonds. What's the sentiment check on that, Joseph? Uh, you know, I'm I'm actually surprised. So there's a good comment. Someone on Twitter made this remark that you know, if you buy thirty-year Treasury bonds and the world implodes or the Fed cuts, then you get you know that those will appreciate a lot in uh, in dollar value because they're long duration assets, and so there's a good risk return there. You know, that kind of makes sense to me. Um, I would never do it, of course. Uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm fully of the view that we were going to have a decade of, of higher high inflation. You know, it, buying 30-year Treasury bonds to me, it's kind of like the dude who was buying a hundred-year Australian Austrian bonds. There, man, Austria, Austria, great trade for them. Whoever bought that, you know, my condolences. That was that was not a good move, but. I really think we're in a world where we're moving towards just structural changes. And we see that all over the world, higher interest rates, higher inflation for the next decade. Um, I don't think that the market is fully on, on that page yet. The strange thing is that it seems like the central banking community is, is more uh, in agreement with that. You see speeches from the ECB, from the Fed, from, from Canada, all basically looking at their own work and being like, I hike the rates a lot. It's supposed to work, but it's not working. So maybe something's different. And so they're speculating on on what could be different. Yeah, Joseph, I, I think, you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, that at the beginning of the year, you after having a whopper year in 2022 of that stocks and bonds would go down because the Fed would jack interest rates and, and saying that the 10-year would go above 4% from you know basically 1.5%, which is a very, very, you know, very, very bold call that turned out to, to occur. After that, you said that in this year, you thought stocks would actually outperform bonds. And of course, you know, December, January, I was getting all, you know, recessioned up with, with my, my interviews. And I was like, oh, Joseph is so smart, but I don't think he's right about that. And I was really believed it. But you were right, Joseph. Stocks have just creamed bonds. I mean, uh, 
S and P yeah, five hundred. You know, is, I, I yeah. really don't like what I'm looking and seeing in the market, though. It looks like stock market goes up literally every day. You know that 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 that's not that's not healthy price action. But um, I'm really surprised by how how uh, how high the stock market went. Um, it, it seems to me inconsistent with the stance of monetary policy and where the economy is. So uh, I I'm really cautious about that. Go Can you ahead, take David. us back in time to to when you made that prediction and what was informing your view then that stocks would outperform bonds and why is it seems like your your sort of prediction is playing out. So what about the price action makes you feel kind of queasy? So, well, first of all, nothing's supposed to go up every day. And especially when the Fed is trying to. Uh, so I, I look at the world through the stance of monetary policy and, you know, the Fed was Fed is being trying to be as hawkish as they can, probably a little bit slow. But um, so I, I think that that's. Um, that that in this in this context, I'm not saying the stock market would crash, but I wouldn't expect to go it to go up every single day. There's probably some kind of options dynamic uh, playing underneath. So heading into this era, I, I didn't think that we would have a, a you know a big correction in stocks or even a recession for two reasons. One is earlier in the year I wrote about how there's this tremendous credit boom from the banking community, and what that tells me is that there's a lot of money flowing into the economy. And that's going to keep demand up. And it, it seems like it has kept demand up. And on top of that, you have to keep in mind that we're having tremendous amounts of deficit spending. And as uh, you know, Warren Mosler were mentioned on your show, Jack, now that's supportive of demand. And right now, deficit spending is about 7% of GDP. That's really supportive as well. And so I, I don't think we'll have a recession this year. I think that we probably will next year. But that, that's... Uh, I think these recession trade guys have been early. They're going to be right eventually, just um, maybe two years too late. Oh, They've been very early, early and in investing mar markets, you know, being early is, is very similar to being wrong. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so Joseph, in your uh, penultimate piece on fedguy.com, you said John Galbraith observed that in the 1920s, investors happily paid double-digit margin loan rates because they thought that... Uh, stocks would go up by triple digits. So they were borrowing money at you know 15% because they thought the stocks would go up 115%. Uh, is that in any way similar to what we're seeing today to, to a much smaller degree where interest rates are at 5%? And so you know the discount, you know, stocks are the sum of the future value of cash flows. The future is worth less. Interest rates are higher. Uh, so stocks should be worth less, but they're not. I mean, we're pretty close to, uh, you know, we're, we're, some people are saying we're in a new bull market. Yeah, so I definitely don't think we're in a new bull market, but I think psychology plays a big big role in um, shaping prices. So, like your example, Jack. So, come on, I'm telling if I tell tell someone who's owning QQQ or Nvidia or something like that, hey, you can get five percent risk free, and they'll be like, well, that's what I get in, in two days, right? So <laughs> why would I do that? <laughs> so uh, there's a psychological element to to this, and. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why monetary policy isn't working as well, not just in the U.S., but globally as well. So we have 7% mortgage rates, but you still got a lot of people wanting to buy houses. Uh, you know, maybe they're looking at history and thinking that, well, interest rates always go lower. I can always refi or, or something like that. Um, so there's a there's a, like a bull market psychology in a lot of assets where people are just you know always trying to buy the dip. And to be perfectly clear, that worked really well for the past decade or so. So it's understandable if they believe that. You know, Joseph, I think that's a really good point. The psychological element is really important. I'm actually reminded there was a great interview that Jim Grant did with uh, Grant Williams, uh, actually a couple of years back. And he describes when he was first getting into the financial and investment business that 
you know, which is in sort of the the 80s, and they talked about bomb bonds as uh, certificates of confiscation because at that point, right, there had been this was just after Volcker had been waging his own war against interest rates, and you know, the idea was just that bonds are just going to go down and down and down and down, and of course, that was right before this sort of 40 year bull market in in bonds, and you could sort of argue that we're at a very different sort of the opposite point, right? Where we've seen this this incredible bull run in stocks for an extremely long period of time. And it takes a little while. Like the Fed is really trying to turn an enormous barge, which is sort of the psychology of the entire market and an entire generation of investors who have never seen the opposite of what they're used to play out. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, so, you know, if you anyone who's in the markets today, all they saw was interest rates going lower and the stock market going higher. So I think that that, well, I mean, by the dip happens because it works. And uh, w if we ever want to change that attitude, it's going to have to be a period where it doesn't work. And, and I'm not just talking about one year like last year, but maybe a more extended period of time. Um, so I, I actually just longer term view. I, I, I'm not bearish on the stock market. I just think that, um, you know, there's a there's a timing aspect to this that we shouldn't just be going up every single day so it probably should cool off a little bit uh, maybe we will continue to go up every single day uh, I, I don't know but uh, it looks like the nikkei is going up every single day so it, it could happen it happened yeah. in, in the late 1990s as well but when you keep going up usually you also can go down really rapidly yeah nikkei is japanese stocks and i, I think uh tesla is up was up 12 days in a row 13 is it, it up today hey, let me let's check because yeah. we all know 13 is a super lucky number right Joseph, oh my I'm God. not really it was down today. It was down today. It's down today. Well, it's, something's wrong. I think we need to call Jay Powell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, people, I saw you know CNBC uh, right when the dots came out at 2 p.m. Uh, the statement came out at 2 p.m. 30 minutes before Powell's press conference at 2:30 p.m. The stock market went down, and the CNBC headline was Fed uh, Fed's you know dot dot plot rattles the stock market. I'm like it's down 60 basis points after you know, the Nasdaq's up 40% this year. Uh, well, that's a big deal, Jack. It's supposed to go up. Yeah. Oh, I saw Jim, Jim Cramer on, on Twitter <laughs> you know, said, uh, guys, d d you know, don't worry about this uh, uh, you know, fall in stock prices. And that was on a day when the stocks fell, you know, we're within 1% of their, of their year-to-date highs. So I think, yeah, to, there are a lot of people who, the stock prices have been so good to stock investors this year where, they're taking a one percent decline as Armageddon. You know. Meanwhile, we we know that it, it's not Armageddon. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, so, I think I think the Fed looks at this and they're uh, they're uh, they can't be comfortable with this, right? So, things are not. I mean, so from a monetary policy perspective, one of the ways that you implement monetary policy is you have a reverse wealth effect. It's so Bernanke back in. The, post great financial crises, there was deflation, high unemployment, economic growth wasn't good. So he's like, you know what? What if I blow a huge asset bubble and so everyone would have more money in their trading accounts that they can go and sell and go and buy stuff? Maybe that would help economic growth. And so that's kind of what we what he tried to do through QE. And it, it, um, it, it did, you did make an asset bubble, it did not really help inflation and growth that much. But that just goes to the fact that one of the ways that monetary policy is implemented is by having an effect on wealth. And, you know, we, we hiked rates to 5% and it's not working in, in that transmission mechanism. So I have to imagine the Fed doesn't really like 
see like this. They didn't say anything to that about this today, but it's not helping their cause. So you can have continued spending driven by wage growth as we have now, but part of it could also be driven by appreciation and assets so people are wealthier. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Right. So you said the Fed's aggressive tightening led to a sizable reverse wealth effect in 2022, but this has been largely reversed. This is from fedguy.com and, and the chart on the bottom shows, uh, you know, I think U.S. households or private people, uh, assets in green, liabilities in red, and the difference being their net worth in black. And yeah, people's net worth in aggregate is relatively close to its all-time highs of uh, late 2021. Joseph, I want to ask you about banks and credit tightening. Okay, the Warren Mosler argument is uh, the government running fiscal deficits is stimulative and the Fed is paying out all this interest, you know, on the over $2 trillion in the reverse repo facility at 5%. Meanwhile, the assets that they own were mortgage, you know, they own the mortgage of people who, you know, refinance their mortgage in 3%. So that is net stimulative. You know, the Silicon Valley Bank issue, the Fed has, you know, that times 50, except the, the Fed can print money. So it's, the Fed's going to be okay. Um, so that's net stimulative, fiscal deficit. That's the Warren Mosler argument. What about commercial banks tightening credit? And yes, Joseph, we've been hearing about this for two years, and those people who were warning about that have been wrong so far. But you know what the what the wise man does at the beginning, you know, fool does at the end. Like I, these, it's it could start to be a, a thing where you have these regional banks where their deposit costs are going up to three percent. And you know, I, I did an interview with uh, Randy Woodward, who you know, Joseph we spoke to, and John Tuhig, who trains trades all these loans across you know over a thousand banks across the country, mostly of small to mid middle sized banks. And to the extent that banks are still lending, it's because they're making loans at six percent, which don't make financial sense to them. But they're doing favors for clients or the loan officers, which are basically you know, salespeople, are like kind of leading the show and the financial officers and treasurers, even though it's not wise to make loans at this level and they should be pulling back on credit, they're not. But according to them, the uh, uh, tightening in credit is coming. And I know, you know, when I do, when I do these interviews and interview people and to a somewhat lesser extent, maybe when people listen to them, they can be very convincing. So this interview was very convincing to me, but you know, we did have a credit boom in 2022. You're absolutely right. But it seems like the credit boom is about to be over. What do you think about that argument? And is does that argument have to be true in order for us to have a recession? Like, does the recession case really hinge on on that argument? So I watched that interview. I think it was great. So great job, Jack. And I, I, I thought, uh, you know, Randy and John's uh, insights were really helpful. And I, I totally agree that we are definitely having slower credit, big credit growth. So but I, I would step back first, though. So last year, we had record, record big credit growth. So usually we have about four the banking sector makes about $4 billion in loans a year. Last week, last, last year, I think we made about $1.2 So it was a banner year. Now, heading into this year, 
now just before anything that happened in, in March, banks were tightening credit conditions and bank lending was, was slowing down significantly. It's not surprising. Two things are happening. Fed is hiking rates, less demand for loans. And secondly, banks are aware that there's an economic cycle. So when you're in, heading into an economic cycle, you, you might have some defaults. So you got to cut down on lending. Uh, you don't want to make loans that don't get repaid. We had some panic in March, in April. Now, fast forward to where we are today. Weekly Fed data shows that credit growth has basically been at a standstill. It's kind of creeping up a little bit. If you look at the loans and leases data, but it's been slowing down a lot. And it's part of the reason why that I think I think that it's likely we'll have a recession next year. So I say this because, well, there, there's a lag effect to this, right? You just, you, last year, tremendous amounts of credit growth. This year, slowing down. There's a, there's a, there's a process through which this works through the, to the economy. There's still a lot of money that's being spent. Um, eventually, that slowdown that we see in the banking sector is going to be felt more acutely, but I, I don't think it's going to happen this year. But again, I, I'd also have to highlight something we haven't seen before, is that even though we're having banks reducing their, their lending, less money creation, still have the fiscal deficit, very large, historically speaking, continuing to put money into the financial system. So. Um, even if we do have a recession, I'm not sure it's going to be very severe since simply because we have all that um, fiscal spending that that keeps coming through. Yeah. And even if the regional banks do pull back a lot, I suppose it is possible that the large banks are in a position to make tons of loans, whether they, they do, we'll see. So they could fill that hole, but, but we don't just we don't know. And uh, pa Powell said, Jay Powell said, if we see a lot of credit credit tightening, if the Fed sees a lot of credit tightening, we'll take that into account. I was totally paraphrasing. This is from my notes, but yeah. that was in response to Rachel Siegel's follow up question about credit tightening. So that could impact whether the Fed hikes, you know, once or twice again. If if the credit does tighten significantly, that could prevent another rate hike. Yeah, that, that could. I thought it was really interesting how they how many times people were asking Fed Chair Powell. So what do you see in the banking sector? What do you see in the banking sector? You know, are banks actually tightening their, their lending centers? And he kind of dodged that consistently. Mm -hmm. He's like, ah, I'm waiting to see, waiting to see. Um, ah, well, we have Fed presidents go out on, and say that I think uh, Kashkari and also um, someone else, uh, uh, Logan, went out to talk about uh, what they're seeing in their district. And they're like, yeah, we, we haven't seen that what happened in March having a big impact on, on bank lending conditions, but it's something that we, we want to keep in touch. So I think that's actually consistent with the overall data and that the banks were already tightening their loan growth uh, heading into March. And, um, you know, not since then, it's it's been just very, very slow credit growth. So um, it could be that we have to have to have more time to, to see that play out. But no, I, I have no doubt that uh, lending growth this year will be a lot slower than, than last year. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, but I was also yeah. just one, one other thing that I think is really interesting. So. Every individual FOMC participant makes that projection on the dot plot based upon what they're seeing. Large, large agreement that it's going to be another 50 basis points this year. So obviously these people have firsthand information as to what's happening in their district. They have regulators, you know, talking, they are a regulator, they're talking with all the banks in their district to form a view as to how tight bank lending conditions have been, and then just kind of work that into their overall forecast for interest rates. So if uh, if the great majority of the FOMC is plotting down five and a uh, five and a half by the end of this year, or five, I'm sorry, 5.6 by the end of this year, so two or so 50 more basis points, uh, that leads me to believe that what they're seeing in their district is not super severe, at least not yet.
in terms of mm. bank credit tightening. Mm. What, what did you think, Joseph, about Chair Powell's comments about specifically the concentration of commercial real estate in small regional banks? And he sort of made this comment that, well, some of the, the smaller regional banks, as long as their loans are dispersed, they'll be totally fine. For those that hold more concentrated loans, I can't remember exactly what he said, but you know, my impression was kind of, <laughs> they might be fine or there might be more losses. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah. Uh, so Chair Powell is, in my view, referring to a finding that was in the most recent Fed financial stability report. And in that financial stability report, they have a special section where they research what's happening with commercial real estate. So commercial real estate is super broad. You have, uh, you know, multifamily housing, you have hospitals, warehouses, uh, you know, retail, and of course, you also have office buildings. So across this wide spectrum of commercial real estate, you know, things are broadly okay with the exception of office, now, obviously, especially office in big cities because no one is going back to the office and adjacent to that are the retailers who are dependent also on people who, who worked in those office buildings. So that's, that's a point of concern. So the Fed staff looked into the looked into the data to seeing where this exposure is in the banking sector. And I think they have a really interesting finding. So they broke down their banking sector into three categories. The first is the GSIPs, so the JPMs, the cities of the world. And they looked at this and these guys have very little exposure to this at-risk uh, commercial real estate. Okay, mm. take a step down. What about the regionals? Like a, let's say not the regional, let's say Regions Bank or a, uh, MNT, just the big regionals that everyone would have heard of. Surprisingly, also very little exposure. Okay, so what about all these other small banks that no one has ever heard of? You know, in the US, we have over 4,000 banks. Most of them, obviously, no one has ever heard of. Oh, they actually have a sizable exposure. So, um, so GSEBs and uh, the regionals, the big regionals, each have about 100 billion each uh, for their section. The small banks that no one has ever heard of, 500 billion in, in exposure so that that is concerning right so that that could be a problem for them although to be clear we don't know how they're how they underwrit them so maybe it's very conservative so and maybe it's very so the loan to value could be very uh very low now chair powell actually so i don't know the distribution but chair powell what i learned from his speech is that the distribution is actually kind of dispersed so it, it's going to be okay, pain is going to be spread out to the extent there is pain. Then, of course, he's like, well, but maybe it's, maybe it's concentrated in some places. So I'm sure that out of the few thousand banks, uh, someone is going to have uh, a bit too much exposure. But my takeaway from this is that it's not going to be a, a serious problem. Yeah, so uh, just looking at Bank of America, they got about a trillion in loans, 60 billion in commercial real estate, so 6% of loans. And then office is 18 billion. So what is that? Uh, and the rounds to zero, I would think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's um, you know, like two percent of of their entire loans and less than one percent of their entire assets. And then, as you say, yeah, Joseph, so much commercial real estate is multifamily, and multifamily could have issues with rising rates. But the fundamental issue is is concentrated in offices. And a sort of bullish argument uh, would be. That oh they, they made them at conservative loan to values. They lent against a hundred million dollar building, and they only lent forty million dollars. So it's a forty percent loan to value. But as John Tuhig said, like using the phrase lo "loan to value" in the loan trading world is no one uses that anymore because it's irrelevant. It's all about cash flow. So you do have a quote hundred million dollar buildings that you know it maybe the valuation is twenty million. Who knows? 
Yeah, it's, definitely somebody's going to have to uh, take some losses without doubt. Yep. Yeah, I think there was a, this was probably, you know, just an anecdote and one specific example, but there was, I think, a Wall Street Journal cover piece about uh, a specific office building in San Francisco. I think it was a $300 million building that was selling at 20% of its face value. So there definitely are those examples out there. Yeah, Joseph, I'm going to propose a little counter argument uh, to that, that the Fed will continue hiking, which is that it's an, you know, it's a, that in December 2018, Jay Powell said that they expected to continue to raise rates. And I've got the dot plot from 2018 uh, in front of me. And they said that, you know, then interest rates were at a peak of 2.5%. And they thought that by 2019, they'd get to 2.75 percent, three percent. By 2020, interest rates would be at you know around 3.25 percent. We know they were actually actually at at zero. And then actually later in 2019, before before COVID, the Fed started cutting, not not hiking. So the dot plot does have a pretty dubious track record, right? I think the Fed in general has a very dubious track record. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But I think that uh, you know no one is always wrong. No one is always right. In my own judgment, I, I think that uh, I think that inflation is a more serious problem than the market is getting credit for, simply because this is a problem that you know. If, if you just look at just look at what hap what's happening happening in the past uh, year, uh, inflation has been very sticky, not just in the U.S., other countries as well. Uh, this actually reminds me of what happened in the 1970s, where inflation was not just a U.S. problem, but it was happening all over the Western world. So this tells me there's something structural going on here. Something is different. Uh, and so uh, if you if you have a Fed that's committed to getting inflation under control, uh, actually, I'm not really sure if it's working the way that they think it is. Like I mentioned before, you have interest rate sensitive segments reaccelerating. You have financial assets reaccelerating. Uh, things are definitely not not as working as as um, as they thought they would, as they thought, as the best of my understanding, they thought they, it would be working. And you can see that in their projections as well. GDP is stronger mm -hmm. than expected, inflation higher than expected. So that's the monetary tools not working. And of course, you also have the fiscal side also being very aggressive. Now, to get inflation under control back in the 70s, we had the cooperation between the Fed and the government. So the government had to come back on spending. Uh, that's, that's not happening uh, yet. So that's a that's a really good point. There was actually a question about this and Jack informed me. I don't I don't listen to as many FOMCs as, as Jack does, but informed me that this gets asked basically every time. But there was a question about the, you know, sort of the cooperation. I'm paraphrasing here a little bit in between the Federal Reserve and the fiscal authorities, where there's a CBO projection that I think in 10 years from now, with the deficits that they're projecting to run, we're going to be 50 trillion dollars in debt. And is Chair Powell having a conversation with the relevant fiscal authorities? to sort of cooperate. And his response was a very pointed, nope, we do not do that. <laughs> well, you know, if, do you want to get inflation under control? You better start doing that. So that actually <laughs> surprises me because uh, let's let's look at the ECB, for example. The ECB will go on and give speeches and, and uh, Madame Lagarde would say, so we're trying to get inflation under control, but listen, you guys are giving everyone stimmies, right? That, that's not helpful to get inflation under control. If you want it to get inflation under control, we need some more cooperation. You can't, you can't be doing all this. So they go out and say that. Um, Fed, Fed is not comfortable doing that. 
Uh, I think that's disappointing, especially given the fact that when inflation was low in 2020, the Fed, Fed basically went out and said, hey, guys, spend as much money as you want. So if you're willing to say that, you got to be able to do it on the other side as well, to be symmetric, to be fair. And um, I, I think it's hard to get inflation under control for the next in, in any time period, as long as we have 7% fiscal deficits. It, so, Joseph, what with seven percent fiscal deficits, what level of interest rates would be sufficiently restrictive to get inflation under control? If five percent isn't there, what what is? That? That's a good question. I, I I don't know. So that that's the thing about macroeconomics or financial markets in general. The underlying relationships are, are always different. So it's not going to be some giant physics equation where I solve for some kind of R star or whatever, and voila, suddenly inflation comes down. It's going to have to be, you know, touch and go. I'm going to adjust rates here, seeing what happens. Okay, that's not enough. I'll adjust more. Um, so what we've learned so far is 5% is not cutting it. Now, fast. let's rewind. Two years ago, would anyone think that 5% was not enough to get inflation under control? I, I don't think so. Um, but we're, we're here, and it doesn't seem to be working, and that's why the Fed is willing to go uh, a bit farther Eventually, though, you know, we could end up in the world that Warren Molster talks about, yeah. where because debt to GDP is so large that the more rates, the more you hike rates, the larger the interest expenses. That is to say that uh, the interest income for the private sector is such that rate hikes are counterproductive. Now, I'm, I don't think we're there yet, but, you know, easily one day we could be. We're definitely yeah. on the trajectory of being in such a world. Right, Joseph. So yeah, so Warren Mosler uh, expressed the somewhat heterodox view in economics that actually high in interest rate, the higher interest rates go, they're more inflationary. They don't curb inflation; they cause inflation. They exacerbate inflation. Just so it sounds like you're somewhat sympathetic to that argument, but just to sort of uh, get you on the record, let me pose this counterfactual to you: If interest rates right now were at zero and the Federal Reserve did no hiking whatsoever, do you think inflation would have been higher or lower? Well, it'd be much much higher, without okay. doubt. Um, the interest rate at zero, you'd have home prices up another 50%. S&P oh would, would, right? <laughs> would go to the moon. That's that's money for a lot of people, right? You, you do some YOLO stuff, get some money, go buy a Porsche, you know, change the license plates, BTC or something like that, right? So th that, that definitely happened in 2020, 2021. So um, th there's definitely a channel between you know, wealth and inflation and uh, if you have interest rates at zero, that this paper wealth is going to go to the moon. I think some people could even can make the argument that, you know, but then the bond market would uh, implode because everyone would we'd be afraid of um, inflation. And so that could cause some kind of financial calamity. Maybe. Um, I mean, bond market doesn't seem to be that responsive, honestly. Did not predict a uh, 5% inflation. 5% inflation is here. It seems to be quite happy uh, having negative real returns. So... I don't know if the bond market is actually as sensitive as many people think. So and, just to get you on the record, Joseph, even though you did write an article at FedGuide.com like you know many months ago called "Inflationary Hikes," you don't actually think that high, uh, higher interest rates cause inflation. You just think that they have not f curbed inflation by nearly as much as the Fed would have thought or most people would have thought. So inflationary hikes was about the mechanism where when you have higher interest rates in the in the current regulatory regimes. Uh, it encourages banks to create credit, which is inflationary. So in the in the past, so a lot of banks would borrow short in the short-term money markets uh, to, to fund themselves. And so when interest rates rise, 
So their funding costs would rise. That's doesn't really that's not really how banks work today because so much of their funding is deposit based, and that that has to do with regulation and quantitative easing. And so when the Fed would hike rates, they'd be encouraged to make loans, which is actually exactly what they did last year to a historically high level. Yes. So you know, so that that kind of played out, and we do have inflation today. Uh, that being said, I don't think it's happening right now. As we noted already, mm -hmm. uh, banks have tapped down significantly on their lending. In part, it is um, uh, just the economic cycle turning, and in part, they could be concerned about uh, you know March banking panic. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Mike. One, one second, just so uh, you know, folks who say, "Oh, yes, we have consumer prices have risen, but we haven't had real inflation," because real inflation is monetary inflation, expansion of the monetary base. In twenty twenty two, bank loans exploded higher, so we did have tons of monetary inflation in twenty twenty two. I, you know, may be convinced that that is coming to a close and right quick, but uh, that is just. Just, just for the record. Okay, Mike, I know you're itching to ask a question. I just have a, you know, this, it might almost be really overly simplistic, Joseph. So just, uh, you know, feel free to tell me that this is just a silly question, but maybe just as a little bit of uh, pushback here on this idea that what the Fed's doing isn't working. Um, you know, the long and variable lags of monetary policy, the time frame that I had always had in my head, I know it's not always exactly the same, and there aren't that many instances in history with which we can get an exact measurement here. But I had always had the, heard that was about 18 months. That was the, the fact that I had in my head. You know, looking back in time, we did the first 25 basis point rate hike in March of last year. So, you know, so we're not even to sort of the midway expectation for when we should be feeling these, uh, these rate changes. And at the same time, you know, mean reversion is a very powerful force. So, you know, talking about stocks and why are they doing what they're doing? We had one of the worst years in uh, bonds, but it was a bad year for stocks as well. So could we explain some of what we're seeing now just by, you know, maybe to use a really simplistic middle of the bell curve argument, just that we're seeing some mean reversion in the stock market and that it's taking just a little bit longer than average for monetary policy to take effect? Totally, totally. And I think that if you ask uh, more dovish members on, on, the, on the FOMC, they, they, they'd say exactly that. We hiked mm -hmm. really aggressively. Monetary policy works in mysterious ways. So we, we got to, I mean long and variable lags. So we got to wait a little bit to see how that flows through. And, you know, they, there, there's some there's some logic to that. And as you mentioned, 18 months is, is a commonly cited measure. Um, so that that's that, that that would be their argument and part of the reason why the Fed paused. We, we just need to, um, you know, just see if it's working. So they could be right. So we'll have to see in the coming months. Got it. Just, I, there's a moment where Jay Powell said, "We yeah, we might do a little skip. Oh, I shouldn't use the word skip. You, <laughs> why, why did he say that? What's the difference between a skip and a pause? That, that's a linguistic thing that went over my head. Skip means we're going to hike in July, guys. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay. skip implies that it's going to, it's back on. Yeah. Whereas you pause jump says, and you, la you jump and you land, right? So you, you skip uh, a month and you land. So that, that's, that's what I took from it. Um, well, you know, he's already telling you in his FOMC dot plots that he wants to hike again. So he's telling you that it's a skip, but he doesn't—he doesn't want to commit to to what happened, what's happening in July. So, yeah, it's a—I uh, think it's it's totally reasonable to just to just because we don't really know what's happening. So we're just gonna things are not evolving as we expected. So we're just going to take it one step at a time. I, I think that's reasonable, but you also have the risk of uh, just kind of being too slow. Again, there is some indication that 
maybe we uh maybe let's say looking at interest rate sensitive industries like housing maybe we already bottomed and we're reaccelerating again so it's not that the monetary policy has has yet to take effect it's that it has already taken effect and now we're past it we'll have to see in the coming months Joseph, I'd love to return actually briefly to this conversation that we were having a couple minutes ago about sort of this distinction between the federal government and the fiscal authorities wanting to spend versus what the Fed is doing in terms of making monetary policy less accommodative. Jack, I wonder if you could pull up one of those charts that we have about the interest rate expense of the government. And yep. there's another, and there's another um, Joseph, I, I've heard you talk about this, but there was a, a period of time where the Treasury was essentially getting a dividend from the Exactly. Yeah. The Fed's contribution to federal tax receipts. And that is yeah. absolutely dropped off a cliff here. Yep. And, you know, this this points to sort of some some longer term strains here, right? In between that discrepancy of the federal government wanting to spend money and the monetary authorities making it much more expensive uh, to spend that money. So, mm -hmm. you know, at the risk of making an argument that, frankly, people have been making for 40 years, right? And every single person that's made this argument has been wrong. How long is this really sustainable? And at what point does the Fed come under political pressure here to reverse course? Um, reverse course in the sense that it uh, basically you know, has negative, has operating losses and is printing money to make its interest rate payments? Yeah, operating operating losses. Or if let's just say, for instance, the, you know in Japan, I'm pretty sure it's something like 25% of their uh, you know, annual budget goes to paying down their their national debt. I think we're still an, a, a ways away from from doing that in the U.S. But I wonder if there does, you know, at what level here does this, you know, the amount that we're paying to service our debt enter the the national discourse, and there's some political Fed pressure put on the Fed that way. So you know, Chair Powell, it seems very adamant to, to not to want to wade into any of this, um, you know, congressional spending and, and stuff like that. So I think that, that that will continue. So if there is political pressure in the future, you know, so it could be simply for the Fed to keep interest rates lower. Um, and I think that's more common throughout history, right? So throughout history, the, the fiscal the fiscal guys, they want to finance their debt as at the lowest interest rate possible. Whereas the central bank is thinking about things like inflation. So usually what happens in history is that, you know, the fiscal authorities ask the Fed, uh, ask the central banks to try to keep interest rates low. And, and that's where the political pressure comes in. So in this scenario, on the track that we're on, we have, it's definitely unsustainable fiscal policy. And so we could have a world in the future where interest rates rise a lot and the Fed would be under political pressures to keep interest rates low to help Treasury handle, handle this. Now, in terms of operating losses by the Fed, I that's a talking point some people will have. I don't really think it matters that much, though. Um, people will talk about it at, at the congressional hearings, but it doesn't seem like there's really much concrete uh, action behind it. But isn't it isn't a Fed's operating loss... I mean, the Federal Reserve is the government and, you know, a federal deficit is the surplus of a private of this private sector. So if the Federal Reserve is running a deficit, not, you know, uh, it's losing money because it bought mortgage backed securities that are yield, yielded 2% and now it's paying 5% of reverse repo. So they have no money to give to the U.S. Treasury. As a matter of fact, they have negative money, but they can print they can print the difference. Isn't, isn't that just money printing? Yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> All right. 
Well, I got I got a final uh, question for you. Well, well, before I do, Joseph, I just want to say, um, yeah, people should obviously need to check out fedguide.com and you are uh, at fedguy12 on Twitter. And uh, Mike, of course, you're the you're host of the On the Margin podcast, uh, where this will be released as well. Joseph, I uh, want to ask you, I posted on Twitter, what questions should I ask Joseph? And I got a really asking, interesting question about uh, the People's Bank of China and China adding liquidity. How might that impact the Fed's fight against inflation? And you know, I know you kind of are a global central banker. You're following all the global central banks. But uh, the People's Bank of China, I think, recently cut rates. And they may, may do so again. There are a series of, series of rates. The Chinese stock market likes it. But how big of an impact is that on the global financial system and, and the Federal Reserve's impact with inflation? So I think so. China is standing out uh, among the central banking community because it's an easing mode because inflation in China has been lower than than many other places in the world. So, you know, weak economic growth, uh, low inflation, uh, that's a disinflationary impulse when it comes to the real economy. So if the central bank of China is cutting rates and while the rest of the world is hiking rates, then what you could potentially have is that uh, you could have people move money out of China and, and uh, invest in, in higher interest rate countries like the U.S. or throughout the Western world. So I think that that is positive for financial assets, all, all things being equal. It's really hard for me to know just how big an impact that, that, that has, though. Yeah, my very uneducated guess is when the you know, Chinese government turns on the money printer and they say, we're going to stimulate the economy, I take them at their word. In the same way when the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government did that in March 2020. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't, I, I did not take them at their word, and I was wrong. I mean, I think you generally, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta go where the money goes. Uh, you know, the Nvidia bulls foresaw that months in advance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, great to get both of you here, Mike. You got uh, any final questions? No, this was a real pleasure. I feel like I'm sitting in on an episode of Forward Guidance here, guys. So thanks for having me. <laughs> That's how I feel, Mike. It is an episode of Ford Guidance. That's true. Oh, yeah. Hey, actually, Joseph, we got some really exciting interviews that uh, you and I have scheduled out. There's one that it's not ironclad yet, but uh, hopefully we get it clad. And this would be really exciting. But uh, we're speaking with Edward Chancellor, uh, financial journalist and author, you know, legendary author of uh, Devil Take the Hindmost, and most recently, Price of Time, all about Great. interest rates. He said interest rates are not the price of money, they're the price of time. Uh, so that, really looking forward to that. That should be over the next week or two. And then we're also interviewing Bob McCauley, Robert McCauley, uh, formerly of the BIS. Joseph, just quickly tell the audience, why is Bob su such a big deal? And why is he kind of, you know, like, a, you know, so revered in the, so, in the macro community? Bob, Bob was formerly at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and then at the Bank of International Settlements for many years. And he is one of the world's foremost experts on the global dollar system. So anyone who knows anything about the global dollar system reads Bob's work religiously. He's one of the best people on that topic. So we're going to be able to discuss what he thinks about uh, is happening, maybe the origins and where he thinks the dollar system is going. So uh, I know many of Ford Guidance fans are really interested in this topic. And, you know, I've read all of Bob's work and I think he's top notch. It's definitely something that I'm looking forward to. 
Me too as well. Thanks, Joseph. And a, a final reminder for the audience that Forward Guidance and On the Margin are available as podcasts. If you're watching this on YouTube, check that out on the Apple Podcast app or Spotify, all other podcast apps. Sometimes they're posted in advance. And you know, it could be nice if you, you know, go on a walk so you can listen. So you can always be listening to macro content, not just when you're at home. All right. Thanks, Mike and Joseph. And thanks, everyone, for watching. Talk soon. Talk soon. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys.